You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. I'm here with local legend Dave Barris, longtime journalist at Channel 8. Thank you very much for joining us. Glad to do it. It's really, really nice of you to come down. This is a significant role reversal. Because you have interviewed me yes. several times. Yes. And so uh, I'm trying to think if you ever really kind of punked me out. So that now I now now's my revenge. <laughs> yes. I, I, I hope I didn't, but I but I can tell you that I remember the first time I ever met you, and, and you probably don't remember this, uh, but if you remember, Mayor Ballard was uh, a, a surprise winner uh, in the uh, mayoral race among those in the know. And uh, and so the next day or two after he was elected, uh, they said, hey, go go see if you can find who's putting his team together. Where where is all that going? And I found you in an office that obviously you had like just taken over and you were sitting at a card table and there was another guy in there. And I for the moment, I can't remember his name. And you walked in and you said, hey, what's up? And I said, well, really, that's what I want to know. Hey, what's up? And, I don't think anybody knew. And that's it. And, and then you, and you started talking about, you know, how you were going to try and put this whole team together. Well, we had the mayor on uh, for the inaugural one. It, it seemed to make sense. Yeah. Because he's for more reasons than I can articulate at the moment. But he was so terrific. And it was fun talking to him about that night, which, as I relayed in the inaugural podcast, I was at your studio yeah. that night. Yeah. I was working for Finch. And Shella that night, and it was the most. Sur- I remember just looking at the res- election results because I had just come back from running the elections for Doris Ann Sadler, so I was kind of knowledgeable at the time. Yeah, and it was the most surreal thing just to see it happen, even though I had been told like it was certainly possible. And as we relayed with him, I thought he was going to get destroyed uh, at the beginning. Yeah, and then clearly something was happening. Yes. Uh, but at the transition office, that's what you were talking about. Yes, because yes. he, you know, he he told he told us that he thought he was going to win, and and I believe him that mm-hmm. he thought he was going to win. But it was they were completely unprepared. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the day after the election, and I'll remind this when I talk to Jim Shell on a future podcast. <laughs> but he he just showed up at the county Republican headquarters and started interviewing him, and I was just showed up to say congratulations to all my buddies who had taken you know, created this upset. Yeah. And I was like, who's doing the messaging, the PR for the mayor elect. And the answer I got was nobody. (laughs) And I go, so Shella just walked in here with Hester and started asking questions. They're like, yeah, we didn't feel like we could tell him. No. I went, Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Did you, you didn't cover politics all that much. I mean, that was kind of Jim's beat. Oh yeah. but, But as an anchor and somebody who has to report on that stuff, how much did you follow it? Oh, I followed it a lot. First of all, I'm, I'm a political junkie. I love politics. I really do. And um, we, uh, I, it was a fascinating, um, uh, a fascinating election. Um, I can tell you, 
I had some inkling that uh, the uh, uh, then mayor, Bart Peterson, uh, might not be doing as well as we had thought because about uh, a month before the election, that election, uh, I had asked his people if we could have permission to watch the returns with him in his uh, hotel room. He right. stayed at a hotel downtown that night. And they said, absolutely, we'd be glad to have you. And uh, and so, you know, for me, that was a big coup. We were the only ones, and I got it only because I asked. And um, and uh, they said, yeah, we, you know, that would be great. We'd love to have you up here. And they told me what time and, and uh, after the polls closed, and they'd bring me up. Well, about two days before the election, I get a phone call, and they said, look, um, I don't think we can have you write it at uh, 6.30 or so, but, um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll bring you up about uh, 7.30 or 8. So I said, okay, all right. And that night when we're at the hotel, uh, they wouldn't even take my call. And I never, ever. Really? Yeah, never got upstairs. And, and of course, uh, my folks, you know, the producers and all that, who, who had in, anticipated this, we had all anticipated it, uh, and we were going to uh, run some stuff up into their uh, hotel room. You know, they were not happy with me because, you know, we had that set up and then they backed out on it. Um, and, and so we, we started when, when I told them, you know what, this, this is going to be late. This is later. Uh, he's not going to let us up there right away, even though he had said that he would. Um, I think that we began to realize that, uh, maybe, maybe his polling had shown him things weren't great. And we're discussing the 2007 mayoral election with David Barris, longtime channel eight journalist. Is it, in all of your years covering Indianapolis, you got here in what year? Um, 1980. 1980. Yes. So would you, here in time to like cover the, um, I'm trying to think what happened big in 1980. So it would have been the. Well, it, I covered when I, I was in Evansville before uh, Indianapolis. Uh, and uh, when I got up here, um, Bob Orr was running for governor right. uh, in 1980. Um, and because he is from Evansville mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I had covered him down there, they said when I came here, hey, uh, could you go down there and uh, be with him when he voted? He voted in Evansville in that election. So uh, we actually flew down to Evansville. Ah, the good old days. Yeah, I mean, think about that. We flew to Evansville from Indianapolis, and uh, and we were there. And they, uh, uh, we were there when he cast his uh, vote. And Josie was there, his wife at the time, and uh, and I remember standing there, and we were just kind of talking, waiting to do an interview, waiting for Josie to finish voting, and it came out, and I I, I said to. Uh, Mr. Orr, I said, well, how'd it go? I, I said, I, I'm assuming you know you at least have two votes, right? And uh, and he said, well, I know I have my vote. And, and, <laughs> and he said, Josie, who'd you vote for? And she just stood there and she looked at him and she looked at me. And, and he, he turned to her and said, tell the man, tell him who you voted for. And she goes, oh, oh yeah, uh, Bob Orr. 
<laughs> and I always wondered at that moment if she had actually voted for Bob Orr. <laughs> so, uh, had but, you always wanted to be a journalist? Is that something that came to you early? Always, always. I just, I loved it. And I grew up in the era where we had Huntley and Brinkley and, and you had, uh, Walter Cronkite. Uh, and, uh, in those days, uh, uh, I grew up in Chicago um, the, the news in the evening was 15 minutes is what it was. Right. That's right. And, uh, even the, uh, sponsored by camel. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and oftentimes the anchor would be there. I think there's Mike Wallace stuff where he was doing some shows and he'd be smoking his cigarette and he would pitch a commercial, <laughs> you know, for, for camel or one of those, whatever he smoked at the time. And, uh, but I, I just, I knew it. I, I love that stuff. Um, I used to love, especially when they did live reports and it was, you know, we were in the, somebody my age was kind of in the beginning of all that. I mean, it was a big deal to see a live report. And oftentimes it was something like a, 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 a not a rock, a, you know, when a, a astronaut went mm-hmm. up right? and, um, and I remember, and they'd sit there and they have their headsets on and, uh, they would, uh, you know, be talking about, well, you know, they're T minus whatever. And they'd be talking about the whole thing. And I would go and I would get my dad's earmuffs. We had hats. We couldn't have earmuffs when Mm -hmm. we were young. And so I would get my dad's earmuffs and pretend I was doing a live broadcast of whatever was on at the time. If it was a, uh, an astronaut going up in space. Cause you see the, some of that old footage. I'm a, I'm addicted to YouTube. Yeah. And like just a couple of days ago, I watched, 45, 50 minutes of the CBS reporting of the Kennedy assassination oh. as the world turns yeah. and that they broke into and then yes. they, they had, they broke into it. Then they went back to it. Then they came back to it and then they were, they were permanent. But, but even later ones in the, in the sixties, the big Dane was they'd always have this cryo that said via satellite, mm-hmm. like, Ooh, this is big technology now. And now you use satellites to get from, you know, a to B and you don't even think twice about it or, Presented in color. Yes. Like the technology. Yes. Uh, I wanted to ask you some questions about, about journalism, but when were when did you, when did you graduate from college? Where'd you go to college? Um, I, I went to uh, Miami university in Ohio in Oxford, Ohio. A lot of people call it Miami of Ohio. Miamians who went there and graduated do not like that. They say <laughs> they, they like to point out that Miami was a university before Florida was a state. So, you know, people, people <laughs> should, it's Miami University of uh, Ohio. But uh, anyway, Miami of Ohio, that's where I went as an undergrad. And then I did, uh, I got a, a graduate degree from Ball State. Uh, and Telecom or? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it was in uh, journalism slash uh, TV. And it was interesting because that's, that was our introduction to the state of Indiana. Uh, I was married. I had graduated from, uh, undergrad, couldn't get a job in uh, TV news. Uh, it went, I sold cars for a while. I sold artificial flowers for a while. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I said to my wife, I, uh, and I got married along the way. And I said to my wife, I said, you know, if I want to do this, I got to go back to school. It's my only way in. And so I went back to uh, uh, Ball State, got a degree there, um, was able to get a job. At, I, I had an internship at Wish, got a job down in Evansville, worked there for a year, got a call back from Wish. They said, hey, we have an opening. We'd like to see a tape. Sent him a tape, came up, did an interview, got the job. 
and uh, was there for 37 years. Did so nobody who's trying to make sure I say this correctly. Yeah. You were there before anyone else, save like Ahern. Yes. Like you were there longer before Shella, before yes. Debbie Knox. Yes. Yes. And I'm trying to think. Leslie Olson was there, yes. you know, a long yes. time. We watched Channel 8 when we were kids because Mike Ahern was Catholic. That's that. Yeah. And my dad said, we're going to watch someone Catholic deliver the news. Wow. I remember that conversation. I've actually had a chance to tell him that. I'd love to get, I'd love to do have him get on this show but yeah or on this podcast but that's why we watched it i remember jim wilson yeah the sports guy and then of course chet Kopic. but yes. what was it like i mean that's kind of thought of as maybe the 50s is the golden era but for yes. tv news yes. it seems like the 80s is really when it came down partly because of the technology you mentioned but yes. but there were several other factors and and you, you kind of came right when indianapolis was getting ready to turn on the jets i'll tell you something when, when we came to indianapolis Indianapolis was, in fact, India no place. Um, the downtown was was boarded up wherever you wherever you went. Mass Ave was oh, it was Mass Ave. It was a mess. <laughs> it, it was an absolute mess. And and the change that I've seen, and I um, I give a hundred percent of the credit to the leadership of the city in those days, who realized that they were at a crossroads, literally. Um, and not just, you know, crossroads of America, but a crossroads of being a dead city or one that could survive and thrive. And they came up with this idea of being the amateur sports capital of the country. And that was an area they had researched and they have found nobody had decided to take that mantle. And they did. And the changes that I saw in my years of reporting in this city were incredible. And every one of them, and I know a lot of people don't like politicians and they don't like these projects, the public private partnerships, because look, I've got, I've got my, in my road in front of my house has potholes. I don't need another stadium downtown. Um, but I would argue that those things really do make a city and keep a city vibrant and alive so that you can get the rest of it fixed. They just had uh, Mike Greenberg was in town. It was for the Big Ten championship game, I think, yeah, I the football championship, right. and he had a tweet. He said, Indianapolis is the best big game city in the country. Yeah, yeah. And if, you had, if I had said in 1980, you'd be like, you just got to be kidding me, right? It, it would have been a joke. It, I mean, it was nothing. Yeah, people always say, oh, I remember the holes in the ground uh, where where the mall is now downtown. This is this wasn't even holes in the ground. This That's right. was boarded up, nothing to do past 7 or 8 o'clock at night. There was nothing downtown. Well, I tell my kids, because I live downtown now, but when I, I was born in 67, December of 67, and... You know, we spend a lot before we moved down here. We spent a lot of time down here yeah. doing all the things that are fun to do, ride bikes, whatever. And I said, when I was a kid, I only came downtown to see Dick the Bruiser. <laughs> if it wasn't professional wrestling, I said, we never came downtown yep. like ever to yep. do anything yep. unless school brought you there. And that was maybe to a play or yes. something at the Mura. But but it's it's easy to take it for granted but your point about, I want to ask you about it again, is city leaders coming together in ways that 
you just don't happen that much. No, no. I, I, I think that in and of itself is worthy of study of how they pulled this off without, I know there was partisan bickering. I know there was infighting. I know people naturally were trying to get things in areas where they could profit. I get all that. But ultimately, what they did was put the city ahead of of the politics to an extent. I know politics is involved in anything. But, <clears throat> excuse me, this was a, a, a just a, a perfect storm of people realizing the city needed the help more than the, more than the individuals needed the help. P.E. McAllister, who's one of the city's founding fathers the last 50 years for sure, uh, told me he was head of the capital improvement board for, I don't know, 10, 15, long mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. He said that he, he never once in any capital improvement board meeting when these big decisions were being made, Hoosier Dome, Convention Center, Market Square, all that sort of thing. He goes, politics never came up. No one ever said, well, you know, the Republicans or, you know, the Democrats. And he says, that's the real secret. He goes, and, I, he, and his his point was, it must, because he's not involved anymore. He's right. 100 years old. God love him. But he said, that must still be the prevailing attitude because these amazing things keep happening. That's right. It, and it is it is a, uh, a miracle on the circle of what, of what went down and how they pulled it all together. And I think we've all benefited from it. I really do. Um, We're proud of the city, but there's also jobs and there's opportunity that there wouldn't be if they didn't come up with that strategy. I think that's exactly right. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you was if you, if in 1980, when you came to Indianapolis, yeah, I was to tell you one thing that's true about Indianapolis in 2018. Which of those things that I could come up with would be most shocking to you? Like if I said, we hosted a Super Bowl. Yeah. If I'd have told you that in 1980, you would say, hey, guess what? You know what? In 31 <laughs> years, we're going to host a Super Bowl. Never. Never. They, they, you would have two, not just one, but two dome stadiums here. Are you kidding me? I was there as they were building the Hoosier Dome. I was there when they took it down. I was there as they were building Lucas Oil Stadium. And I was there the first day they opened the roof at Lucas Oil Stadium. I mean, think about that. We're only talking in a span of 37 years. That's how much has went on in downtown Indianapolis. Uh, the city is always in in the discussion nowadays. I was also there when we we put the second bid in for a second Super Bowl, and we didn't get it. And, uh, you know, we don't get everything we go after, but if you don't go after it, for sure you're not going to get it. And Minneapolis got it basically for a lot of the reasons that we got it. Brand right. new stadium. Yes. Never, I think maybe, I don't know that there had ever been a Super Bowl there before. I'd have to think about that. But there had been, I remember when the first one was held in Detroit, yes. the first Super Bowl was held in a northern city, and it was like in the Silverdome when it was first built, and that right. was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, we used and, you know, quite frankly, when the Super Bowl came our way, that week of weather, which is kind of like the week that we're experiencing now, right. I texted Mayor and I go, this is Ballard weather. Like, you are so lucky. And he acknowledged it. But it was it was another coming together of this incredibly diverse group of people. Yes. There was a political or excuse me, a public relations like volunteer committee. And we all came in there and I ended up 
trying to do it, but I couldn't do it. But in the room, I saw R's, D's, colors, religions, everything. Everybody was just so pumped up for Indianapolis to do this. Yeah. What was it like to cover the oh, Super Bowl? Oh, I loved it. it uh, of all the things I did, it was the most fun thing I ever did in reporting. And we did a lot of reporting all the way back. People forget, you know, there's like a five-year window from the time you're awarded the Super Bowl till you actually have the Super Bowl. And uh, we, yeah, because he got it in seven. Yes, and then it, the game wasn't until twelve. Uh, twelve. Yeah. Yes. So we had all that time. Well, obviously, we covered it uh, as we were getting ready for the bid, um, and and <laughs> that was is interesting to cover that sort of thing because talk about tight lipped. I mean, you couldn't get anything <laughs> from anybody, and I I wouldn't mess with Allison Melangdon. No. She's the best. I, I just an, an incredibly talented person, oh. like to the point of it's almost ridiculous how 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 incredibly well liked, talented, and amazing she is. People just fall over themselves to want to be a, a part of what she's doing. Absolutely, absolutely. And she, you know, the way they pulled it off, and she's so detail oriented, and she's she's so focused on making it right for the city, for the viewers, for the people that come here. Um, and what they did again is nothing short of amazing, uh, in a city this size in, instead of fighting the weather, they embraced it. And, and then we were rewarded with absolutely amazing (laughs) weather and that whole village concept, it was first done here and now it's done in every single Super Bowl. And I think it's the legacy copied in other bids now as well the legacy yes, project he, yes you have to have a legacy project but i believe at the time um that was an nfl requirement that you, there had to be a legacy project uh the question is you know what would it be uh and they came up with uh, with the education part of it which was uh, great and um i i just that 10 days or so when they opened uh georgia street and uh, we were fortunate at the time. We had some uh, managers at, at Wish TV at the time who were brilliant, and um, they were able to get this area that had it was the old um, what was the department store that was in Circle Center that left. Uh, they, they're still Nordstrom. North, Nordstrom's, yeah, uh, that had closed prior to the Super Bowl, and they have a window right there on Georgia. Uh, I think the Indy Star is in there now, but at the time it was empty. And so they leased that out and they brought this, our studio down there. And we were, we had a window right on Georgia Street. And when we did our newscasts, people walked up and down Georgia Street and they waved and all that. It was, <laughs> you know, you talk about pulling people together. And again, nobody knew what, what political party anybody was from. Nobody cared. We were all so proud of the way they put this together. And, uh, you know, in Georgia Street, it was just the perfect gathering place. It, you didn't have to have a ticket to the game. And you you were still a part of it if you wanted to be. And it was it was the best. It, it was so exciting. You said the Super Bowl was your favorite. Can you think of one or two more? We talked a little bit about Ballard's upset in 2007. Yeah, that was big. Um, you weren't here for Caritzis. No. Mm-mm. That was great Cause, because – as a kid, I must have been nine or ten. I don't know where Kritzis was. Seventy-seven, seventy-eight. They did that live interview with him, or they let him do a statement. 
Yeah. And you heard the F word on television. Yes. And as a 10 year old, nine year old kid, I'm like, this is so great. <laughs> yes. Instead of just hearing my mother and father, <laughs> I got to hear this. I couldn't believe it. I mean, yeah. I was watching TV with my eyes wide open, like, this is something else. I mean, yes. those were the kind of big events, uh, Speedway Bomber, Blizzard of 78. But well, when you I, got here, what's some of the other ones that you. Union Station was big. Union Station was like the first, and people look at it now, they, they go, well, what was Union Station? Well, at that time, when they, when they, took the old Union Station and remodeled it and and made it a marketplace of sorts. It's 1986, I believe. And that was a big deal. I mean, I remember the the amazing opening day, you know, they had this huge thing downtown. It was a it was a big deal. It was also a big deal that it couldn't sustain itself. Um, you know, it was a different kind of almost an inside mall without stores that you knew they were all right. smaller mom and pop kind of stores. Uh, but when they first opened, it was a, it was a big deal and it was kind of the beginning of the rumblings of the improvements downtown. Uh, Bob Bournes, I think was right. the developer. And Jim Dora senior. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they also, they, uh, Bournes had built, uh, a couple of, um, like quads or, or um, these housing for downtown, almost like townhouses. They weren't really, they're still here. Um, and that was a big deal to start building places for people to live downtown. I mean, that's a huge story where, where people want to come downtown and live. Look at all the apartments and the condominiums and all that that's downtown. You know, when I, when I first, walk those streets downtown. I would never have believed anybody would want to live downtown. You know, they had the Riley Towers, which were built, I think, in the early 70s. Yes. Where yeah. the governor lived for a while. Little known piece of history. That's interesting. And, and But that was it. I mean, that's what you had. And I think at the time, they had planned for five or seven towers. And they ended up with three because nobody wanted to come downtown. <laughs> Go figure, right? Now, yeah. Now it's, it's, like I said, I live downtown and the, um, the amount of traffic foot traffic yeah people walking their dogs yeah. people walking with their yes. kids people on their bicycles yes. it's amazing it, it, it is and uh, one of the things we asked mayor ballard when about his eight years in office and i think the first thing he said was connectivity is that you know it's just it's a much more friendly city for people just to be out and about which yeah. of course from a business perspective is that's what you want yes. people walking down mass Avenue going, oh let's go in here okay yes. let's go in here yeah uh when you what was, when you got into journalism, what was like hot? Like, ooh, this is the latest and greatest. And you look back on it now and you're like, we were so excited when we started using this piece of technology. Oh, yeah. and now it's the dark ages. Well, um, we had electric typewriters. I started on, man- <laughs> on manual typewriters when I started. We had manual typewriters and we'd be in there pounding away. But but the bosses all started getting electric typewriters, which was a big deal. Um, and, <laughs> and the other thing was, uh, uh, each station would get a like a live truck. Uh, when I started working at Evansville, uh, we called it the Edge E D G E. Um, I worked for the ABC affiliate down there. Weren't you Ch- Live Eye Channel Seven? Yeah, that's Channel it. Eight was the Live Eye. Yeah, and uh, but when we were when I was in Evansville, it was called the Edge. And uh, uh, WTVW has the edge, and <laughs> the edge was electra- electronic data gathering equipment, 
we were promoting the equipment. I mean, we did commercials because we showing off our new live eye truck. We were able to go live at the scene. That was a big deal. And I did at, at Wish, um, I was in California covering a story, and I did the first story where we had live cell packs. You know, most of the lives are not live trucks anymore, like we know. They're, they are these cell packs that are really cell phones. There's maybe, I don't know, I don't know the, the technical side of it, but there's probably eight or 10 or 15 different cell receivers in this backpack. And you can go anywhere. We we walked down the streets of California, although we it kept going in and out. If you have bad cell, if you don't have good <laughs> cell coverage, you know. But it was the first time we had done it. And I was doing a, a live eye for the 10 or 11, I forget which. And, and, uh, and the producer said, Dave, don't move. Whatever you do, don't move because we'll lose the signal. <laughs> but But it made it possible for us. We went live from L.A. And we were able to go live because of that kind of technology, whereas before you'd have to send a satellite truck or you'd have to send a live truck and drive there or rent one or do something like that. An inordinate cost. I mean, it had to yes. be super expensive. Oh, it was ridiculous, and, and that's why you really couldn't do it. And, uh, and you know, so t- to have been able to do that, to be at the start when we first started doing Live Eye with these huge trucks that, that had all this equipment in it and and do among the first ever with these backpacks i mean the it what the technology i saw is just incredible a lot of these photographers uh, videographers post pictures of them carrying around these giant cameras in 1982 or 83 and now they just have hardly yes it's it's night and day almost oh it yeah we had in those days they had these big belts they had to have these big lights they had uh, these battery belts around their waist they had um the recorder was, they would put on one shoulder, they'd have the camera on the other shoulder, the light would be off of there. It was, and it was cutting fast. edge. Yeah, and that was cutting edge. <laughs> I, I did a story, we uh, wish was the first station to get uh, beta cams in the market. It was the first time you didn't have a separate recorder from the camera. And I remember we did, we did a, a stand up in the state house and uh, the photographer and I ran up the stairs together to show how easy now we could move around <laughs> with the camera somewhere in the wish archives. There's a picture of me running up the stairs at the state house, uh, showing <laughs> off the, the beta cam that we had. But I mean, that's we used to promote the technology. We were so excited to and have now, that. Now I don't even know what would merit that sort of coverage like why would you emphasize that as a marketing tool for technology because so many people have basically almost what you have yes and i think that's it i mean now we just accept it all but it but it was all brand new you must have done thousands of interviews easily yeah do you have any one or two that stand out people Uh, you get to talk to or like wow i can't believe i'm interviewing x um yeah there's there's a bunch of those i i i had uh uh the one that really got me, I, I was an intern at Wish, and Jimmy Carter came into town, and uh, I mean, I was uh, broke always, and my my wife and I, you know, I was a grad student at Ball State and doing my internship here at Wish. Was he president? Did he, he was come president, in? and it was a weekend, and CBS called and said, "Hey, we need a, a tape runner. Uh, would anybody, you know, is there anybody there?" So they asked me, and I said, "You bet." And uh, 
CBS said, we'll, we'll give you $60 cash. Don't tell the IRS. <laughs> this was in 1979. I was like, I was, uh, you know, just to get $60 cash in 1979 was the best. So um, I, I was uh, a runner for, um, she's with 60 Minutes now. I had the name in my head. Leslie Stahl? Yes, for Leslie Stahl. And uh, Rita Braver was her producer at the time. And Rita Braver went on to be a, a reporter as well. And uh, Sam Donaldson was there. And uh, I, they had me, what would happen is I would follow the shooter around uh, with Leslie. And they would, uh, we had these three-quarter inch tapes in those days. They're pretty big. Mm-hmm. And they didn't last very long, 20 minutes maybe. And uh, they'd pop the tape out. They'd give it to me. It was in the old convention center is where he spoke. And I ran upstairs and they had set up this big equipment area where they were going to feed back their stories. And they had all their editors and all their people there. And I ran up there and I would give them the tape and then I'd run back down and find her. But I, I had a, a press credential that got me into wherever I could go anywhere, virtually anywhere, even with the pool camera. And so here I am, uh, an intern and I'm standing in the uh, hallway at the old convention center, and they block the hallway doors, and I'm there in in between the two doors. And the uh, Secret Service guy says, you're fine. Just stay there. You know, don't move. Just stay there. So I did. And, <laughs> and who comes walking through? President Carter. And he stops, and he shakes my hand. And then... We have a, a, a small conversation. I didn't have it on tape, but to this day, I remember just standing there thinking, now how the heck did this happen? <laughs> and it was, I was just standing there when they stopped. You know, once they, when they're going through, everything stops. And, uh, and I thought they were going to kill me or something. I thought, <laughs> what, what am I doing here? And I'm just standing there, and he, and he couldn't have been nicer. He just came over, and, you know, I was 26 years old at the time, and, uh, and I was just totally dumbfounded, and and there I was, and and he was there, and did you tell Leslie and Sam? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> and they, you know, they had access to him anyway. In those days, it just, you know, you had a lot more access, I think, than you do now. And he, uh, uh, the best was watching Sam Donaldson feed his tape back. And people don't know he worked for uh, ABC News for a long time, right. and uh, and foul mouth. <laughs> just nasty human being. Now I didn't work for him. So that was this moment. And that's all I know. And he was up there feeding and I was standing there. I was in awe. These were people that I had seen on the news every night. Well, yeah. People covered the Kennedy assassination, yes. both of them, Martin yes. Luther King, Watergate, yes. Vietnam. Yes. And he's feeding his, his thing back and they don't get it. It, it keeps not showing up and he starts cussing at them. And he says, I don't give an F. I don't care. I'm done. I'm done. I've done my work. And if you can't effing get it, I don't. <laughs> and he's just going on a rant. And I just, I just stood there in awe. I mean, I was like, oh my gosh, these guys, it just was incredible to watch happen. So that for me, that was, that was, you know, and I was brand new. I was just starting out in the business and it was amazing. You worked for a CBS affiliate for all those years. Did yes. you get to meet rather Cronkite? No. Uh, uh, Reasoner, Wallace. I mean, any of those big no. guys come here just to say hey or anything? No, I think, I think at times they sent people out, like Mike would go out. I remember Mike did something 
with Walter Cronkite. I remember that. And, uh, you know, so I think they did. But, you know, in, in those days, I, I was just general assignment reporter and, you know, was not, that would not have been where they would send me. You know, I was down on the totem pole. And you anchored for how many years? Um, well, I started after I was here five years. So I had 32 years. I anchored. I did the mornings for 21 and then I moved to the uh, evenings. So the first five years, uh, I was just a street reporter. But at Wish, you, with, even though you were uh, an anchor, you still reported. Sure, sure. So which anchor is more David Barris, Ron Burgundy or Ted Baxter? Uh, Ron Burgundy, for sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, Ted Baxter is... I don't know. If Ron Burgundy or Ted, Ted Baxter meets Walter Cronkite is one of the great moments in hilarious in comedy history. Oh yeah. Yeah. For we're talking about the Mary Tyler Moore show for those of you who are listening, who are of a certain age, but, yeah. but uh, obviously you're more familiar with Ron Burgundy. Yes. And, and, and I mean, I just laughed and I looked a bit like Ron Burgundy and, and, you know, so I mean, that was seventies. That just was TV in the seventies, you know? And I just, uh, I, you know, I was really started in the 80s, early, you know, 79, I guess I started, but uh, it, most of my work from 80s on, and uh, it it got better. I mean, we were better than Ron Burgundy. That's for sure. <laughs> Mike Ahern was a lot better than Ron Burgundy. <laughs> and he kind of was the personification of, Yes, I mean, no offense to Howard Caldwell, graduate of Howe High School, yes. like myself, by yes. the way, and there's some terrific anchors paul udell i mean there was a lot of really strong people came through here yes now you mentioned a little bit earlier access how much have things changed journalism is under fire for reasons uh, that i would say some of them are deserved and Mm -hmm. some of them are are not and we have to be judicious and philosophical and not everything that's written about them is 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 true but i had a conversation with a reporter earlier about a friend of mine uh, who's quoted in the story and then I offered to be helpful. And, and her point was, I understand why people don't want to talk to us or are scared to talk to mm-hmm. us or, you know, are mm-hmm. worried about what shows up in print. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we just have a few minutes left before we get to the five questions. But is there a Barrett, Dr. Barris prescription for journalism these days and the interaction, anything that you think, man, you know what, we should really check ourselves on this. Or is it more of, that's our role in society and government and politics and culture. And damn it, we need to do it. Yeah. Um, I, a little of both. Um, I, I think that we, we are held uh, responsible, whether people think it or not. Um, anytime we made a mistake, anytime in the years I worked, we fess up to our mistakes and we would always put them on the air and say, we made a mistake. Um, I was a cub reporter and I, I misspoke in a live eye. And before I got back to the station and realized what I had done, they'd already corrected it on the air. And, uh, and I learned my lesson. Uh, we, unfortunately, what's happened is the 24 hour news cycle. There is news everywhere, every second. And the truth is there isn't news everywhere, every second. There just isn't. And so, there has to be uh, airtime has to be filled. The other thing is the industry has changed. Um, we used to have probably 10 or 15 different uh, uh, photographers and reporter teams working together. Right. Now reporters work by themselves. They do it all themselves. 
Um, so things are more rushed. So they don't have the opportunity to get an extra interview because they have to come back and edit it. I never had to edit the stories that I wrote. You know, I was a reporter who happened to be on television. These days, they are reporters, writers, shooters, editors, and then do the presentation on air. That's a lot to ask of an individual. Um, and those are business decisions. And so um, I, I think that it makes it really tough for them, especially they have to turn a story every day. You know, I always I always chuckle a little when people say, oh, you know, you purposely didn't record, you purposely didn't cover this or that. We were, we in, we were always trying to get things done. The deadline pressure for people in, in television news is tremendous. And, and I have to remind my clients of that sometimes. Like, yes. Look, you know, he's, he's got to be back at the studio by a certain de- time or this whole conversation is moot. Exactly. That's exactly it. And sometimes where you would need this, you would really try and get another interview to balance things out. You just couldn't get it. And you know what? They still wanted you to be on the air. You know, you had to, you had to turn a story in that day unless the whole thing just fell apart. Um, and so it, it's not, it, it's not quite as easy as they make it look. And a lot of them really make it look easy, but it's not, it's, it's, uh, it, the deadline and, and what you have to do in a day to turn a story is tremendous. And unfortunately what happens is sometimes the journalism part of it gets lost in the shuffle and that's unfortunate. It really is. Did, did you ever get Did you ever get like angry at at an at a subject or an interview or someone you were talking to when they just either you knew they were lying or you could tell they were lying or they sure. wouldn't answer the question sure. and you're just kind of sure. like, well, then what? Yeah, Mike Pence. Um, <laughs> I, I interviewed him when he was a, <laughs> when he was a congressman, and um, and and. We, <laughs> We, he, he I guess would, I should have closed this close. I used to work for Governor Pence. I, I, I didn't say he was a bad guy or anything, but I got, I got upset with him. We were, we were at the airport, and they used to do fly-ins when he was a congressman, and, and I wouldn't doubt that some congressmen still do. Uh, but in those days, it was frequent. It happened not just for uh, Mike Pence, but uh, virtually all of our Congress people. They would come out to the airport, and we would all go out there yeah. and meet him. And, um, and, and he had a certain number of talking points and I kept asking him the same question over and over again. And he was doing these talking points and he, he wouldn't get off the talk. And finally I I said, uh, Congressman, I said, please, you know, I've heard the talking points. Now tell me what you believe. What is it that you believe? And he said, well, well, I've told you there's this and this and this and this. And I said, well, thanks. And I left. And, uh, you know, I was really frustrated. He had decided whatever it was, he wasn't saying any more than that. And and what he said was of no value to anybody. Everybody knew exactly what it was. We put it on the air anyway because he was a congressman. But. And his message discipline is oh. whether you like it or dislike it, like him or don't like him or his politics or whatever, it's ridiculous. Yes. Whereas opposed to... Greg Ballard, <laughs> his message discipline was 
should I have said that? Yeah. And I always would say, just laugh. I'm like, yes, I'll, I'll take care of it on the back end. Just say what you want. I'm yes. like, you were elected. People put their faith in you, someone they couldn't pick out of a lineup yeah. uh, to run this city. Yeah. You know, you need to keep that edge. Yes. I mean, not be undisciplined. Don't say things that, that don't make sense, but you know, err on the side of being a straight shooter every time yep. and we'll take care of it. You know, if I have to call the reporter on the back end, I'll call the reporter on the back end, but, yes. but keep, keep saying now, obviously with president Trump, you have that, you know, on steroids uh, and <laughs> yes. you know, it's an interesting, where's my buddy Mark Lauder when I need him. Yes. But uh, it's hard as someone who does PR for a living to serve my clients. I always say, my my the media is my customer and then my clients are my clients and they're not mutually exclusive but they can be because mm-hmm. sometimes reporters want something you can't give them right but i've always found that if you if you're able to articulate as best you can the reporter or the media's point of view on a particular subject or particular topic or or an event then you go so much further to getting the outcome you want from a messaging standpoint. Yeah. Um, you proud of, of, I mean, not, not overly obviously, but just in terms of what you did for a living with journalism under fire these days. I mean, if you, you puff your chest out a little bit and go, you know what? I was a journalist for yeah. 37 years. Oh, absolutely. No I, regrets. No, none, none whatsoever. No I love it. And, and I, you know, even this, this whole thing about, you know, uh, uh, journalists are under fire and all that. Um, I can't tell you how many times people would call and and uh, say something about a story I did or even about, you know, my hair, or my mustache or something. Um, pe- people people <laughs> criticize you. It's a public job. And I get that 100%. And we, we need to exist to keep the democracy a democracy. Um, and we also need to be called out. And that's the difference. We can be called out. And I don't think I I think this whole fake news thing, I think deep down people know that it really isn't fake news. It's news they don't want to hear. It's news they don't like. It's news they wish wasn't reported. It's news sometimes that's reported poorly. We do that. I get that. But I think deep down people really understand that there is an absolute need for uh, news organizations that they can turn in some terrific work and that um, it, it isn't fake news. It may not be news we like or not reported in the way we like or even not reported fairly. And sometimes there is only one side and that's wrong. But I think overall uh, people here understand that, it, it, you know, I'm going to call it fake news. but It's not really fake news. We know that. And I think they do. I think they know that. I remember telling them both, Last last thing, and then we'll move on. But I remember telling the mayor, just because you don't, he read something in the Star or whatever. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean that it's not true. Yeah, I'm like this is a gentle push in the ribs. They're trying to guide you to something that that could be beneficial to us. So you know, read everything you can, even you know, as long as it's not psychotic. But unfortunately, a lot of things are these days. But moderate, reasonable, intelligent criticism. Reading that with your mind open. There's no better way to improve, no matter what you're doing, I, whether I you're agree. being a parent or being elected official, wherever you're like, you know what? They got a point here. Yep, I agree. We've reached the very famous 
world renowned five questions uh, <laughs> set, uh, part of the podcast that we'll close with today. Okay. And so I've stolen it a little bit from Mr. Lipton. Yes. But not completely. Because you're so, not going to say the French. However, he says it in French. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. right. So, first question. Yeah. What was the first concert you attended? The uh, very first concert was uh, uh, um, Bill Haley and the Comets. <laughs> that tells you, you how old I am, serious. right? Yes. Ballard's was Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, wow. <laughs> Down See, at IU, I'm I even, er, I'm older than than that. Yeah. So, yeah. When were you born? I guess I have to ask you now. I, 52. 52. Yeah. I'm Bill 66. Haley and the Comets. Yes. Was it like the State Fair? Yeah, it was. It wasn't the State Fair, but it was like the State Fair. And it was at a, a hall at a, at a school. Um, uh, I got lucky um, when I was in high school. I saw REO Speedwagon. Uh, and they were at a, uh, a high school event. I mean, they were just getting started. Really? Yes. Uh, there's a, um, Mazetta, Ramon Mazetta is a local uh, construction guy. And we were just chatting. It was prom season. He and I were having breakfast or whatever. And we were kind of just talking about, it came up because there were a lot of reservations for prom where we were. I'll make this fast. I said, did you go to prom? He goes, yeah. He goes, he goes, we had an interesting band play at the prom. And I go, who? He goes, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Oh, get out. I'm like, I just stared at him. He goes, yeah, they just formed. Oh, my god. Because he's from San Francisco, I think, or whatever. Wow. Anyway, so uh, Bill Haley and the Comets. Uh, number two, what was the make and model of your first car? It was a 1957 Cadillac Coupe de Ville uh, that was in the worst shape ever, and I loved that car. What year did you get it? Um, I got it uh, probably when I was about 16, so that would have been in 68. So it was about an 11-year-old car, but it had been abandoned. My dad was able to buy it, and you know it was just, and we had to fix it up to get it going, and we got it fixed up, and it was like driving a train. Oh, I bet. Oh, my God. It was just this giant car, <laughs> and uh, believe me, I could pick it out at the uh, parking lot at the high school, but I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> if you number three, if you could recommend any book to someone to read, which book? Um, well, I, it's interesting. Um, I, I, I love to read and, um, I, I don't read a lot of fiction, but, but the world according to Garp is, is one John of my, Irving, is yes, right? John Irving. I read, every, I've read everything he he's written and I just think it's an absolutely amazing amazingly written book that is filled with humor and poignancy and emotion. So um, I would highly recommend that. Uh, I, and I don't, he's about the only fiction writer I read. Um, I read a lot of political books and uh, in the middle of some now. What but, are you reading right now? Uh, well, I don't know if I should say <laughs> fear. <laughs> I'm reading fear. I just, I finished a book not too long ago uh, uh, about, uh, Mike Pence called uh, the Shadow President. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's an interesting book. Um, I read James Comey's book. Um, uh, so I read a lot of I read a lot of politics and stuff. It's fascinating. It the is behind the scenes stuff. Yes. Number four. If you could have dinner with anyone in the world, whom would you choose? Anyone in the world, right now. So I should say, excluding your family members. Yes. Because the mayor of course, wanted to have lunch or dinner with Mrs. Ballard, which I get. Yes. But that told him that's a cop out. No. <laughs> Be uh, more creative. 
Um, I would, I would uh, like to sit down with Vladimir Putin. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to hear him talk to me face to face. I'd love to ask him questions and and see him respond physically. I know the words probably would be not truthful, but I'd love to see his response. I'd like to see him and look him in the eye and see, you know, who is this guy? What, what is he really, you know? Uh, so he, probably Vladimir Putin. Good. That's a, he's fascinating in more ways than one, almost yeah. morbidly. So in some yes. ways, yeah. Last one before we go is if you could witness any event in history, which event would you choose? Uh, be standing there as it happens, as it happens. Wow. Any, any event in history. Um, that's, that's a lot. Um, I think I would like to see, uh, my, my mom or dad born. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to see the world that they came into. I'd like to see their families. My, my, both my parents died when I was pretty young and and so i i would like to see that i'd like to go back to that time and just see that and or know. see the moment they were introduced yeah yeah <laughs> i did a history show with pe McAllister, and it was like the 10 things in history you most wanted to witness and there were obviously surrendered appomattox other things too yes. but my last one was to be standing there when someone said Annadel meet John Vane. John Vane meet Annadel. Wouldn't that be cool? And just be like, you guys yes. should just walk away. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right now. Yes. Thank yes. you so much. Oh, thank it's, you. I've worked with you several times in my business and you've always been terrific and always asked good, tough questions and always treated my clients well and let me know kind of what you were after. And I, and I can honestly speak for every PR person I know that just, thinks the world of you, thank you and lamented your retirement, although we were all happy for you. Uh, thank you for listening to Leaders and Legends. Today we are with David Barris, Channel 8 legend. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Strategies.com.